and welcome to the next episode of DDR, the podcast all about your favorite drow, Drizzt Doerden. My name is Justin, and in this episode, we'll be diving deep into part number one of Exile, titled The Hunter, discussing all of our favorite plot points, characters, and more. Part number one. Part one. one. Yeah, we're doing uh, more than just one chapter. That's right. We've changed the format. Yeah. <laughs> so My name, make oh, sure. Oh, sorry, real quick. Just uh, for those that are listening, make sure you read chapters one through six. Read the entire part before listening to this episode, unless you want spoilers. That's perfectly fine. But anyway, sorry, Jeffrey. Go ahead. No, no. And as Justin just let you know, my name is Jeffrey. You know what, though? Even now, in the beginning of season two, we are still huge fans of Dungeons and Dragons. So you can bet your britches that we're going to take a look at this part, part one of this book, and see how it relates to our favorite tabletop role playing game. Following along with the show is easy. Just grab a copy of the book, read the next chapter. No, read the next part. It's right there. It says part, Jeffrey, but I still oh, said chapter. What? Why did you say chapter? <laughs> Because it's, it's what we did last season. It, it, has it become so ingrained? It uh, is. It's so in there. It's funny it, how you do something so repetitively that even when you put it down in the note and yep. you're like, hey, big blinking letter, and you go right on through it, like just, just trucking through it. Part. Like, Read hi, my name part. is Justin. Wait, no, that's your line. <laughs> Yeah, so read the next part of the book and tune in every week. But remember, we want to hear your thoughts, too. You can share your dim lights with us at drizdunright at gmail.com. Or better yet, you can be gone a part of the ongoing discussion. It's in our very own Drizzt Dunright Discord. The invitation for the Discord link is in the uh, podcast description. So if you raise an interesting point, like we've told you before, we might just bring you up on the show and talk about it. Like right now, if you were to go in there, you'd see that, uh, I think we got a little book report help going on I was talking to you about beforehand. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sevic is helping somebody out with a, a quote of the where they can find the exact, you know, uh, quote in a book that they're doing for a class. And it's just, you know, hey, look, man, people helping people helping people. We're going to have to bring that up and talk about it and give it a... Oh, totally. Awesome. Clap. It's awesome. Clap. It's great. <laughs> You know, this is a great way to keep in touch with us. It's a great way to get the latest updates about the show. Uh, if you're still interested in being part of the One Shot campaign, we are going to put this together. I just, you know, I just need a few more of you to come on in. To come on in and be part of that fabric because I, I need a couple of people. And right yep. now, right now we have, we have a roster of yeah, a few, but we yeah. just got to add a couple to it. Just a couple more. Come on in. Get the Discord <laughs> link. Click into that chapter. You'll find the, uh, the, the board link there for the One Shot. And yeah, it's just... One of the things that for us, we want to get it off the ground and get it running. So, Justin, totally. it's totally. been a little while, but how you been? Yeah, so we we did. We took a little bit of a break here, didn't we? Um, I mean, a lot has happened since. One of the, one of the driving factors for needing to take a little break um, was for the fact that I was in the middle of my training at work. And um, since then, I have passed the final. I got a 98%. So I'm Way to go. happy with that. Missed one question uh so i mean that's my life so far i mean like since then i've just been studying and studying and studying past that and then once i pass that boulder's gate jeffrey yeah oh my gosh boulder's gate i was so on the fence about getting it and then i mean a few people talked about it in our discord i listened to another podcast about video games and excellent i mean i'm hooked jeffrey it's it's bad and what's worse <laughs> is like 
my wife Sarah is also in on it. Like we we bought her a Steam Deck just so she could play there. So we're not fighting over the computer, right? Right. Uh, we had to buy another copy of the game, and I mean, not that we were ever fighting about the game, but it was just kind of like, oh, you want to play? All right, go ahead. But I want it soon. Like, <laughs> like, hey, I did leave my guy in a tavern. Okay, he can't continuously <laughs> drink. We've got to move on from there. Uh, but yeah, now we're every once in a while we're playing together. It it's it plays so much like D and D, just in a computer game, and. I'm playing through the campaign by myself, but I'm also playing through a se- like a separate campaign with my wife. And there's a lot of replay value there. Just the amount of creativity you can have in it, in it, and everything. It's it's really cool. It's nice. really cool. <laughs> nice. I knew they were doing a new Fable, so it's like I, was, you know, I don't have an oh, Xbox. Man. I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. And then it seems like Baldur's Gate is the, uh, I guess, the alternative to that if you want to have a uh, RPG style game right now. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for Fable as well, but I feel like that one's not coming out for a while yet. But nice. Yeah, I mean, and then soon Starfield is coming out, the new Bethesda game, and I'm just like, oh, I won't be able to get that <laughs> just because I'm <laughs> playing Baldur's Gate so much. Meanwhile, but... <laughs> I'm stuck back here on like Dead by Daylight, running around trying to kick off those generators. <laughs> you ever played that game? No, I haven't. Oh man, it's such a simple no. game, but it's fun. You run around and you're being chased by a bad guy. So one okay. guy plays the bad guy, and then you have five people who are the uh, innocents, right? You all okay. run around. You have to try to fix six generators, which open up a gate. And then you have to go open the gate, and everyone has to escape. Or the killer okay. gets you and hangs you on a hook. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. So there's all different <laughs> kinds of killer, like uh, Friday the 13th, uh, you know, uh, Halloween, Saw. Like, they use different themes. Ah, cool. And it's just, huh. it's, 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 it's it's a pretty mindless game. Like, they do the skill checks where it's like you hear, bong, and it'll have a little, like, uh, speed dial. And there'll be okay. a small section that you've got to stop the spinning needle in. Right. Otherwise, okay, you gotcha. fail the check. And it sets off an alarm that the killer can see, and they come after you. Yeah. Oh, man. That sounds terrifying. Though. It is, but it's also like I don't have to put an hour or two into it. You know what I mean? I can just be like, ah, cool, pop on, gotcha. you know, jump on gotcha. here, and run around like an idiot. Yeah. A little fun, a little fun. Yeah. No, that is fun. Now, Baldur's Gate is not one of those games that you just pick up and – I mean, you pick it up and two hours goes by in like five minutes. Yeah. It's just like, where did the time go? Shout um, out bad. to my wife, Elizabeth. She one time bought me Skyrim, and she was like, you know, I thought you – you would spend a lot more time playing Skyrim. I was like, well, see, that's the problem is you either spend all <laughs> your time playing the game. Yeah. Or smarry very small bits. Cause it's like, yeah. you know, she, I did not get the, the same amount of use out of it. She thought I was going to it. I was like, cause I couldn't sit down for like six hour blocks. Right. And go that's hunt what it takes. deer in a forest. You that's know? what like, it takes, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> a lot of it is just roaming and wandering and it's it's but it's it's gorgeous you know what i mean like and i love those kind of games so i, is, I look yeah, forward to those yeah yeah totally, totally so what do you think that uh we kick this season off knock this part down hit an insight check and get this baby rolling so for the insight check the more things change the more they stay the same right our first insight check starts right where the book one left off Drizzt is uh, recalling the day that he walked away from the city of his birth, with all of the Underdark laying before him and the determination to live by his morals. With Guinevar by his side and the scimitars belted to his hips, the future was his own to determine. Then we're hit with an interesting time jump. One of the more like intriguing things about races that are long-lived is how they measure the scope and scale of their life. For Drizzt, he ponders how you measure centuries, 
when a single hour hmm. seems a, like a whole day, right? And a single day seems a whole year. So it's kind of inverted from where you normally see it, where they think that, you know, the passing time, he's looking at it that the uh, time has slowed down so right. much for him. Yeah. <clears throat> when the moments aren't <laughs> shared with anybody else. Uh, the, the solitude that exists beyond the cities of the Underdark was more precious than the resources necessary to survive. Inside of the quiet is where the hunter trained himself in survival, gaining the physical skills and experience necessary to live on. Solitude, however, was also his enemy, the indeterminable, incessant silence of hushed corridors. Inside this solitude, actions boiled down to survival. Drizzt became a creature of instinct, calculating, and cunning, but not thinking. Not using his mind for anything more than directing like the newest kill. Mm -hmm. Guenevar saved him from existence as surely as she had saved his life from the cave fisher all those years ago, providing Drizzt with reasons to look forward to the next day, the next time that he could call her forth and they could prowl the tunnels together. Could the pain of tooth or talon be greater than the emptiness and the silence? Drizzt doesn't believe so. <laughs> yeah it's it's really interesting how he has developed this like split personality almost like a smeagol versus Gollum personality yeah and um, i mean that's a great look at it because in the same instance smeagol and Gollum were buried from the sunlight you know what i mean right. they, they, yeah, they yeah, spent yeah. so long away from anyone that yeah. like that it created that rift and that rupture between personalities kind of yeah now now these personalities are distinctively different from Gollum and Smeagol but like the one is the survivor the one that is like kill everything that needs to be killed so that we can eat it or so that's that it Gollum. doesn't kill me and yeah <laughs> that's right that's more like Gollum um well that's but, the role Gollum filled in that right um, of course yeah, yeah. totally totally so it's just, it's really interesting. So, uh, all right. Awesome insight check. Uh, the next portion of the show is the Drizzed. The Drizzed. It's the part of the show where we take a look at the next part of the book. I almost butchered that too. And we give you <laughs> the Drizzed of it. Man, it's just like so ingrained in my head. <laughs> so, um, don't let yeah. the words fool you. <laughs> I just have to read. That's all I have to do. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this this uh, Drizz that we're about to do here, it's going to be a little more of a summary than before. We're not going to be able to go in as much detail as we were able to in the past book, just because we are covering six chapters here. So um, our, our goal is to be slightly more concise. Right. That, yeah. That's the goal. That's yeah. the goal. So um, chapter one here starts off. In House de Worden, how, uh, ten years after Homeland ended, uh, they do. Uh, Salvatore does provide a little bit of a recap from the end of the last book, where Zack is sacrificed in Drizzt's stead. Drizzt then denounces Loth even harder and then runs off into the Underdark. So we now have hired mercenaries uh, being used to fight between the Dewardens and the Hunnets. Uh, the mercenaries of the name uh, Bregan D. Earth, uh, who is, you know, this is where we first meet Jarlaxle, who, um, yes. I mean, yeah, like a number of people in our Discord already had conversations about their favorite drow, whether it's Drizzt or Jarlaxle. And for a lot of people, Jarlaxle's up there, if not yeah. number one, you know? 
Well, I think everybody loves to cheer for a hero, right? But then you have people who <clears throat> they really love an anti-hero, or they right. want somebody else in the the lore and the mon the the, the mantra or whatever the, yeah. the the wording, the lore to to really kind of fall in love with. You know what I mean? Like everybody yeah. loves Harry Potter. But you know what? There's some Snape fans and there's some, you know, some oh, great totally. fans. Everybody's got no, their own that. little niche. And I think Jarlaxle for a lot of people represents like that counter drow culture. Like you right. have the mindless robots that you saw in, in mm -hmm. book one. Then you yep. had Drizzt. He was so just dynamically different. And then right. in here, you have Jarlaxle. Jarlaxle takes it to a whole nother level. This guy yeah. comes in and he's just so like what he has a shaved head but then he has this magnificent hat oh yeah and you know Which just has like, like a, a huge feather on it from a bird in the underdark right, right? It, yep yeah and he's got all these like uh trinkets and and uh baubles on yeah. his, his clothing which he's got like a high cut vest to show up his abs like that's and right it i forgot doesn't about make that. a noise silent <laughs> right exactly. it only makes which noise is, when he wants it to. when he wants it to which is so cool <laughs> Bro, it's such a level of fashion <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, you didn't even know over. drow had fashion and then in walks jarlaxle here he is like, oh wow <laughs> so jarlaxle returns to matron malice from um you know he was sent to kill dupree hanette malice claims that she was that dupree was which i assume is a um female um but Malice claims that Dupree was the first noble victim of the war, to which Breeza has some snarky remarks to that, right? Shock. Uh, <laughs> their conversation is cut short when House Hanette's, when House Hanette attacks House DeWerden. House DeWerden is outnumbered, but the DeWerdens are better trained. Matron Malice commands Jarlaxle to help her win the war. To which he blows out, a, he brings out a whistle, blows on it. You can't hear it, but all of a sudden, a hundred or so Hanet mm -hmm. soldiers turn and start fighting for House DeWerding. Ah, oh, man, this scene was um, really cool amazing. because like they walked out on the balcony, and Deanon is like, "Oh wow, we're over, we're overwhelmed." He even has to think yep. right away, like fights off a dude from the balcony. Right, General Axel is so calm. He's just like, "Yeah, oh, he keeps good his cool. job." Right. He's like, well, it's like he's just how oh, blows a whistle. I guess it's a trained only for the ears of Breg and Darth. I, yeah. So like, well, because it says that. And it's like, that's why all of a sudden they just stop, pivot and turn. It's like Breg and Darth only looks out for Breg and Darth. I was like, oh, that yeah. is cold-blooded, <laughs> man. I like that. <clears throat> so the Dwardens end up winning the encounter. So then the next day or so, Matron Malice was summoned to the ruling council, which, you know, she's excited for. This is before House Hanette is actually, like, eradicated. Right. You know, they're not judged or anything. But she by knows the they're council. caught. Right. And so like, she yep. knows that she's eventually going to be on the ruling council. There, she was the eighth house, or she was the ninth house of Menzo Baronzon, soon to be the eighth, right? Mm -hmm. So she is destined to be on the council. But Matron Malice was very confused when she showed up. And who else is at the ruling council? Matron Sinefe Hunnett. Wait, what? Because no, she just, she's disgraced. Right. Like, she's supposed to be cowering in her house right now. But right? here she is. Awaiting in... drought justice. Yeah, exactly. But here she is at the ruling council. Malice almost kills her on the spot. But then Sinefe um, uh, discloses that she was also summoned by uh, Matron Banray. So... Oh. 
Malice better not because she doesn't want to interfere with any schemes that the first matron of um, Menzo Berenzon is working on here, right? So, turns out, Lolf demanded that House Hanet attack House Deward and basically just to end this decade-long feud while allowing Sinefe an escape from an immediate death by having her join House, uh, join House de Worden as the oldest de Worden daughter. Shenana is the way that is pronounced in my um, audiobook. Shenana. Oh. Huh. So anyway, <coughs> uh, they just claim that Shenana was living at some other city, uh, other drow city, and then, you know, she returned. Uh, so apparently Lolf. <laughs> apparently I like how Lolf, drow live on forever right they have this this hierarchy oh yeah of houses right. like, and ruling council and they're like, like yeah no your oldest daughter know. just came in from right like no one's gonna know that that's not the oldest daughter right nope <laughs> like oh brisa had a sibling what <laughs> Like, but I remember when Breeza was born and it was this big thing because it was Malice's firstborn daughter. Right? They even had the cake in the corner for Donna from HR. She got the cake with the candles that keep relighting. Right. Said first burn. Firstborn burn. Right. <laughs> so apparently Lolf has wanted Malice on the ruling council for years. But in her house's current state, the Dewardens were just too weak to hold that uh, that hold that position for long. So then they're just like, "Hey, just like put Matron Sinefe in there." So Banray realized this and orchestrated this whole attack, possibly even down to the mercenaries, even switching sides. Like at least that thought crosses Malice's head at one point. Yeah. Um, you know, she doesn't confirm it, but it's like, well, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Banray then commands Malice to deal with her rogue son before Lolf makes them all regret these events. Uh, and then at the end of chapter one, before it actually ends, Malice holds a family meeting and gives Deenan and Breeza orders to go out into the Underdark and find Drizzt and haul him on home just so he can be sacrificed. So that's chapter one. We then go into like chapter two. like how they were two. expecting this giant meeting and she just shows up like, go get Drizzt. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot more small talk to it, but that's the basis of it, right? Yeah, they're like, oh, uh, what are we going to be having for dinner? Go get Drizzt! <laughs> so in Chapter 2, we get back uh, to Drizzt. Uh, Drizzt is hurting after the Basilisk fight in the prologue, which I totally forgot to add into the Drizzt here, but that's okay because Jeffrey's going to be ter- talking about it later. It might uh, be my dim light. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, he's both physically hurt as well as, I guess, sort of emotionally as he now has to go around and patrol, uh, basically recapture the Rothe that his are his pets, I guess his, like, source of food. Well, they're kind of like cattle, like smaller. Yeah, but right. yeah, like they're his right. source of food. I guess yeah. he's, I don't know, pet I think of as, like, you know, you throw the ball, play fetch with it. But right. you're right, yeah. they're his animals. <clears throat> they're his animals. Uh, but now he has to go around and collect them. He also has to kind of like assess all the damage that's been done by this like gruesome creature that he ended up killing in the prologue. Again, Jeffrey's going to get to that. Uh, so now he's living in the Underdark near a grove where Myconid, which are like mushroom people, where they live, right? Uh, Drizzt 
spent his day hunting down his Rothe that were scared away by the basilisk. And while out looking for them, he stumbled upon a group of deep gnomes, uh, the Svrfnebli, or however they're called. I don't actually have it written here, so that's completely from, <laughs> from memory there. But these deep gnomes were mining for gems. And he was entranced by their voices. He couldn't help but spy on them. And he was just like, entranced. Hi. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> they were in, he was entranced by their voices because he just he hasn't heard a voice with his ears for how long, right? Other than his own. Uh, and um, even even though he wasn't able to understand them, he was just so entranced by them. And when the gnomes were packing up to leave. Driz could not help but follow them. Uh, he didn't want to be left alone in silence again. He followed them straight to the deep gnome city of Blingdenstone. Uh, he wanted so much to run into the city and allow the deep gnomes to take him in, but the hunter side of him took over and would not allow Driz to throw his life away. So he ended up returning back to his grove i thought that was so cool in that moment because it really spoke to the fact that like it took him back to when he first met the other gnomes and he was just so oh, entranced totally. yeah. not just at the language but of the memory of the like that first contact he had with a race other than his own that yeah. was you know even though they were not vicious they were very you know they were they were upfront about the fact that he's probably gonna die they're, right. they're probably gonna kill him yeah. But you know yeah. what? They'll show you mercy and make it quick. And it's like, to him, it was like, oh, you know, those are my friends, right? I mean, I mean, they right. could have been my friends because they treated me different than those other drow. And it's almost like somehow his mind has changed that to such a happy memory that he feels he could just walk on into Blingdenstone and they'd be like, oh, Drizzt. Well, well you and know, if, treat him in a, in a, in a, on an individual basis. Right. Well, I don't think he's dismissing the fact that they would most likely kill him if he walked in there, but there's that little sliver of hope where it's just like, but maybe, you know, right. like maybe they would be welcoming me like that. That's what so, I mean. Uh, it's like, yeah. it feels like he took that, that thread of hope that he had yeah. back with uh, Belwar. And then right. he's like, well, actually that's, that's not the smallest rope that might work. Like, Oh, Dris, you're not like, <laughs> it's like, then you're like the hunter side's like, Stop. Shut it down. Do not drunk dial. Right. Stop yep. it. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. And then into chapter three, uh, Dinan and Breeza were hunting their brother throughout the tunnels of the Underdark. Drizzt and Guinevar both sensed the drow patrol coming into the area. Drow, uh, Drizzt was actually amazed that he could hear them so easily. Like, either his ears were so well trained now after being in silence for so long, or um, the patrol just got sloppy or something i don't know but <clears throat> turns out breeza was using magic to track drizzt and she just found him drizzt sent gwen to go see to go see who they were and when gwen came back she pointed at Driz drizzt's house emblem and drizzt knew it was his family so of course he hasn't seen his family in 10 years what do you do drizzt run try <laughs> yeah he made a break for it <laughs> He made a break for it, but he found that the patrol was able to keep up just barely, right? Like he got away uh, pretty far. He was huffing and puffing, but then realized like, oh no, they're, they're still coming. So he knew he was being magically tracked. So Driz well, gave his- At some point, his... I think it literally says he thinks they might actually be getting closer. 
Not that oh, yeah. they were keeping up with him, but like as right. he kept hopping, like eventually he realized like they were they were starting to gain ground. Right. So he ended up giving his house emblem. He deduced that the house emblem was the magical item that they were tracking, right? So he gave that to Guenevar and just had Guenevar just book it, just take off. And yeah, it worked. Like they the soldiers were just chasing after her. Eventually, they got to a fork in the road. They had to choose one way. Uh, they ended up choosing both ways and just sending half of the force on either side while Deenan and Breeza stayed behind. The patrol chased after the cat. Drizzt hid and waited in the shadows above. And when Drizzt was confident enough that the soldiers were far enough away, he dropped down and just slammed his sword hilt on Deenan's head. Breeza responded to Drizzt with her snake whip. But before she attacked, she attempted to deceive Drizzt into returning home, basically saying like, hey, the war is done. Come on home. But Drizzt recognized this deception and launched an attack. Dinan eventually came to and ran away. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened but there. <laughs> if nothing else, that, 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 that moment really reinforces the males in drow society. When Breeze right. is always like, you pathetic male, like, <laughs> Deenan is also in this group, but in a split second was knocked out. And then when he's yeah. conscious, it's gone. Like, forget he's it. Just like, he fought a little bit, but he's just like, nope, yep. drop my sword. I'm out. I'm like out. And he just like feet. runs off. <laughs> and then while fighting Breeza, Drizzt got her into a position where he could quickly end her life. But it was interrupted when Guenevar tackled <laughs> Drizzt to the ground. <clears throat> of course, then Breeza chased after Deenan. Not, not trying to get Deenan to turn around, but just like, no, he ran up. away. I'm running away too. Yep. Just like they were running from him. Um, yeah. And I was a little confused by this, this scene here because I'm just like, hold on. Why did Guenevar stop it? But then I remembered just a few, a few sentences later, Guenevar was making sure that Driz did not break his oath uh, from book one, where he swore to never kill another drow. Uh, and Drizzt and the Panther fled the scene together uh, because the soldiers ended up showing up, but the soldiers didn't actually chase them down um, since Deenan and Breeza weren't chasing them down either. Later on, Drizzt and Gwen were having some relationship issues. Guenevar, <laughs> walked to, <laughs> Guenevar basically walked to her figurine and then returned to her realm without Drizzt um, telling her to, without ordering her to, right? Just like a teenager running to her room and slamming the door behind them. Uh, and this just left Drizzt infuriated. Yeah. Then, then we go into chapter four. Drizzt was slowly going mad in his solitude. He was afraid to summon the cat in fear that he lost his only friend. Eventually, Drizzt summoned Gwen. Thankfully, she seemed to hold no grudges. And again, Drizzt heard the deep gnomes mining again. Mm. Okay. And he was torn. I mean, it was torment for him to watch and listen to them, yet to not be able to go interact with those deep, no deep gnomes. It, like, having to be alone, it was even worse. So he was yeah. just stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? And so and he couldn't like, help it. If you think about it now, you have 97 different streaming channels, right? But if you lived out in the middle of nowhere with no running electricity, no running water, none of that, Right, middle of nowhere, and neighbors uh -huh. not around you, and then suddenly there was a like a jazz band playing down the street. You can almost <laughs> see them. 
But right. you hear them. <laughs> and suddenly, like, you know what I mean? You're just like, what is it? You're just overburdened with that curiosity. You, you got to go. You got to go. Right. Got to go check it out. What is that? That doesn't happen every day. <laughs> so he couldn't help it. Driz overcame the hunter inside him and watched the gnomes for several days. When they packed up to leave, again, Drizzt followed them to the gates of their city. Drizzt brought Guenevar out one more time just to say goodbye in case the worst would happen. Then Drizzt walked toward Blingdenstone's city gates, and the guards quickly came out and imprisoned him. On to Chapter 5, Matri Malice summoned the family to the anteroom to yell at Breeza and Deanan for their failure. She offered Deenan another chance to redeem himself, but Deenan was like, Nope, Drizzt is too powerful. No, there's no way that I would be able to actually bring him back. I would not be able to get back in your favor. Just yeah, he, I can't best him. He had a massage moment where it's like, Nah, kill me. Nope. <laughs> right. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> so the house continued to scheme, trying to figure out the best way to take out their rogue son, um, that so easily bested seven drow where one of them was even a priestess of Lolf. And he just, yeah, took he care of them all. He cut the heads off Breeze's snake whip. Right? Like, I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> a detail that I left out. But yeah, that's something he did in that battle. Um, So yeah, now Pan Camera left. Uh, toward the great chapel in the Dewarding compound, and Matron Malice was about to unveil her next idea for killing Drizzt, but no one else knew what to expect. Malice, <laughs> she <laughs> yeah, got one I of know. these like, like Bond villain schemes. Like, all right, the buzz saw down the table while he's chained to it. I got it. I got it. Like, I didn't see this coming either, and for that, it made my dim light real. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Malice called a handmaiden of Lolth, a Yakalal, uh, while Deenan started leading the crowd in a chant. And in a deceptive plan, Malice acts like she's going to sacrifice a drugged-up Risen, but instead plunges the ceremonial dagger into Shenena, that is, Matron Sinefe of House Hanet. The Yakalal was pleased by the act. Zachnafane is then... Yeah, Zachnafane. Zachnafane. Who died in the last book is then reanimated by Lolf's power as some super drow zombie <laughs> that is like going weekend to... at Zachnafane's. What's that? So, so like the movie Weekend at Bernie's. It's like right. Weekend at Zachnafane's. <laughs> nice, yeah. <laughs> so now they expect this Zachnafane zombie wraith, whatever you want to call it, to go off and collect Drizzt. That, that won't be creepy at all. Right? Nope. Right? <laughs> Moving on to chapter six. Um, we're in Blingdenstone. So after being imprisoned by the Deep Gnomes, Drizzt was led through the city of Blingdenstone. It was a maze of stone that would be nearly impossible, if not impossible, for an invading army to penetrate it. They dragged Drizzt all the way to his cell chained him to a chair and then left and then sometime later we had a number of elder gnomes come in to interrogate drizzt they quickly figured out that drizzt came from menzo baronzon obviously they immediately thought he was a spy because why else would a drow so willingly just like walk into their hands right drizzt tried to explain it to them but the language barrier was just too high they didn't understand drow language whatever language that is 
um, enough. Undercommon would be normal in 5e, but Deep Gnomes would also speak Undercommon. So, anyway. Uh, Drizzt was oh, that then is reminded... a weird fact that they're not able to communicate because in the, you know, in the, in, in, goodness gracious, in D&D, everybody speaks common. There's not like a, a group of gnomes you run into that don't speak common. Well, these are, these are deep gnomes. So they would, in 5e, they would speak under common, it's called. Oh. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure drow speak the same, but... You know, maybe back back so then it'd be like they had their individual English when he speaks to him, like I, you know. I guess, yeah, yeah. Um, Undercommon, right? <laughs> so yeah, the language barrier. Either way, uh, they didn't speak the same language, and except the the one elder did speak a little bit of Drow language, uh, was able to speak with Drizzt a little bit at least. Um, but it was just too high of a language barrier for Drizzt to get his point across. Uh, Driz was then reminded of the deep gnome that Driz saved so many years ago, Belwar Disengulp. Of course, the gnome lost both of his hands before being released by the drow, so maybe that's not the best name to bring up right now. But perhaps the gnome would also remember how Driz fought for that gnome's life. And so that's kind of where we leave Driz at this point. And then back at House de Worden, um, we have everyone marveling over the zombie drow, Zachnafane. Uh, and then Malice orders Risen to take out his sword to test this wraith, to which Risen attempts to, for some reason. Like, is he under a spell or something? Because he he takes Man, out his sword and he have goes, you ever thought that one day you could beat up like an MMA fighter? You know what I mean? No. You're like, I right, on a good day, I give him a good no one way. too. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Risen was always kind of looking at Zach like, yeah, hey, he's better than me, but oh, like, I got how you. much okay. better than me. And then now he's like, oh, psh. I mean, this is he's dead a zombie. Zach. Like... Yeah, I, I'll go ahead and test him out. <laughs> Have at and, thee. And Zachnafane, the zombie drow Zachnafane, just destroys Risen. I mean, Risen's sword goes flying, and before Risen even notices it, he gets a slash across the throat and a stab in the chest. He falls to the floor. He dies before he hits the floor. And then this zombie just tears at Risen with his swords like a madman until like he doesn't stop until Malice says so. And then basically Malice just sends Zachnafane out into the Underdark to go bring back or kill Drizzt. Wow. That was a lot. Yeah. Six chapters worth of the Drizzt and... Um, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about our favorite parts in the dim light reel. All right, the dim light reel is where we cast darkness on our favorite parts from this week and dim light all of our favorite characters, events, descriptions, and more. For me, it was the Basilisk fight. Sure, you could call it the prelude. You could call it the first part. <laughs> It was the Basilisk fight. But I mean, like, I didn't talk about that in the Drizzt, so did it actually happen? <laughs> if a Basilisk fights a hunter in the Underdark and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a noise? <laughs> so the hunter watched the Basilisk pass as he had earlier that same day. I love the way that line hits. They already described it as having eight legs that would occasionally scuff stone. It never had to hurry from a predator, because in the dangers of the Underdark, this creature knew only security. 
It didn't have any predators. Yeah, right? I mean, wow. Way to kick off the book. Book one led us to the overwhelming conclusion that there are horrors in the Underdark. And book two starts us off with meeting a creature that knows no fear of the Underdark. And Dredge is just standing there watching it pass as, you know, normal. It's a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Its breath reeks of deadly poison. It has rows of spear-like teeth. And the gaze of a basilisk could transmutate into solid stone any living thing it fell upon. To this point, we're only introduced to the hunter, but, I mean, we all know who this is, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this creature has eaten several of his roth, and the hunter was angry. Yeah. The hunter checked his blades, relics from his childhood that still maintain a razor's edge. A throaty growl stopped the basilisk, who waited for its next victim, but it also spurred the hunter into action in his magical piwafwi. It allowed him to blend in with the rocks. The basilisk grew closer. It grew impatient, waiting for the growl to come closer. It bent down to enter under the arch, and a globe of darkness enveloped its head, and it took a step back just as the hunter had planned. Fairy fire danced around the basilisk's head, blue and purple flames. The hunter pulled his hood down, for his eyes would only be a weakness to him in this fight, and he drew his scimitars as he dashed up the body toward the head of the creature. Basilisk spun back around, but before it made it halfway, the first scimitar had dived into one of its eyes. The creature reared and thrashed, trying to get at the hunter. Noxious fumes came from its small. The hunger was a step ahead. The hunter was a step ahead, and its second scimitar found the basilisk's other eye. Then the hunter unleashed fury. The basilisk was the intruder. It had killed his roth. Blow after savage blow bashed into the armored monster's armored head, flecked off scales, and dived for the flesh beneath. The basilisk knew it was in danger, but it still believed it would win. It had always won. If only it could get its poisonous breath in line with the hunter. Suddenly the growl came again, and a large panther sprung toward it and latched onto the basilisk's maw. It drove its claws into the gums so the basilisk would drink of its own blood. The panther did not fear the poisonous breath because it was a magical creature impervious to such attacks. Behind the huge head, the hunter struck again and again, a hundred times more. Savagely, viciously, the scimitar slammed through the scaly armor, through the flesh, and through the skull, battering the basilisk down into the blackness of death. That has to be exhausting. Yeah, you would think it. Just just from the cardio standpoint, he'd be spent, (laughs) right? I mean, for me, it's an amazing battle between a lone drow and his companion versus what is described as being basically the most dangerous of dangerous inhabitants of the Underdark. And not only does the hunter destroy this basilisk with a sense of ease, he does it with a sense of personal outrage. (laughs) The basilisk had eaten his wrath, but more importantly, it had trespassed on his land, and it was the interloper, I think is what uh, R.A. called it. And it's such a cool way of describing a monster, which as far as the monster was concerned, was just walking around doing monster things, just minding its own monster business. And then Driz suddenly has to go and plant himself in this monster's day-to-day activities. Right. Yeah, I guess I did. Monster got up that morning and was like, I eat a couple of roth, make my way down to the supermarket, see Monster Charlie, maybe play a game of monster checkers. And, you know, there's Driz (laughs) like, whoa there, monster, thou shalt not pass. And, you know, the whole... Whole scuffle uh, broke out all of a sudden. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, you you say like, oh, it's minding his own business, and it's like, well, yeah, but he went into the wrong territory. But it's like, yeah, like on a normal that that would be a normal day for him. 
No, totally. Right. <laughs> He's just out there doing his basilisk things. Like, do I look good in the mirror? Darn right I do. Looking fresh. Looking basilisk clean. <laughs> awesome. No, that was a very awesome part of the book. And I just, I don't know. In my third read-through, um, just totally forgot to start at the prologue and started uh, at um, chapter one. So that is my bad. Um uh, in the future, I'll make sure that I... Well, there's not going to be another prologue. Uh. <laughs> well, not until we get to book three, ladies and gentlemen. But that Which is only won't take five that parts away. Right. It's not going to take half a year. <laughs> nope. We can guarantee that. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So my dim light revolves around the plot involving Matron Sinefe now or then. Um, Shana- Ooh, uh, foreshadowing. Shanaina or whatever her name was, Doerden. Right, so like the first time through, well, let me let me just get through this. So uh, <laughs> during, the, <laughs> during the ruling council meeting in chapter one, uh, Malice is informed that Sinefe is the one, is to be one of Malice's daughters. Of course, this is a very weird situation, and Malice understandably hates the idea. But then Malice hears a voice in her head. Keep her as long as you need her. You will know when the time is right. And the, like Salvatore goes on like to hint toward the idea that this is the mind flayer. Like it, it crosses Malice's yeah. mind, right? Uh though there's no there's no point where she actually like pinpoints that it was exactly. Right, because for flayer. all we know, this could just be some kind of like psychotic break right. that she's having. And she's like, Oh yes, I will get rid of her when I feel the need. <laughs> but this just brings me back to like a previous discussion we had in the first book. Uh, the mind flayer. I feel like the mind flayer is like definitely like toying, like running, running Menzo Barons on, like just toying around with it. Yeah. I feel like since since the mind flayer is like sort of part of House Banray, the for, the first house of Menzo Barons on. There's a reason for that. It's because they have the mind flayer and the mind. I don't know. That's just what I'm thinking right now. But anyway, so are you that's... saying that, the, that that you find yourself to be a conspiracy theorist <laughs> on par with the point that the secret government of Menzo Barons and has been infiltrated by mind players <laughs> who are not letting themselves be known to the lower common drow that work the day to day forces inside of Menzo Barons. <laughs> that there are these not okay. reptilian, but squid like people who are running the entire. <laughs> okay. So you make me sound like a crazy person when you phrase it that way. <laughs> that suddenly voices in our head are going to, okay. It's hard to not think that, right? No, absolutely is. Because you sit there and it's like, does Matron Bay and Ray know that's happening? Did she right. give the order for it to happen? Or is he doing that while also having Matron Bay and Ray think that he works for her? Right. So anyway. Uh, that's not specifically my my dim, my dim light, just a small like chunk of it. Mm-hmm. But then moving on into chapter five, Malice starts to unveil her plan uh, for getting back into Lol's favor. Of course, the overarching plan is to sacrifice Driz, but how can she get him to come back, right? So Malice summons a Yachlal into the Great Chapel when everyone's there, everyone's present, and she knows that the Yachlal can read her mind. And when Malice requested Zincarla, the Yachlal was near, was um, just 
angered so much as Malice wasn't even in the favor of Lolf, and Zincarla is one of Lolf's greatest gifts. And on like it, it's a rare gift to get, or I should say, it's a rare gift to ask for, and it's even rarer for the gift to be given. I think that's how Ari Salvatore phrased it. <clears throat> so to ask for it when you're not even in Lolf's favor is just absurd. Right. Uh, and so Malice also had a crummy sacrifice for Zincarla. So <laughs> it was just kind of like, really? Right. A, drug, a drugged up male? Um, right. Risen of all males, too. Not even just a right. male. Like this this, this wet rag of a guy? Yeah, this pushover. Like, this is no sacrifice, right? Uh, so when Malice presented her, that sacrifice, we, the reader, we were meant to see Risen all drugged up and assume that he's going to be the sacrifice. But after reading Malice's thoughts, the Yachlal says, Oh, do continue. Suddenly being very interested in what Malice was doing. Uh, and then Shanaina, as the first, as the quote, first daughter, stands forward to drive the ceremonial dagger into Risen. Matron Malice stops her, saying, This time I must do it. She starts the ceremony with a series of chants, raises the dagger up high, then comes down suddenly driving her arms sideways and the dagger into the chest of Shanaina. What treachery. What deception. I was surprised when I first read this. And I was even more surprised the second time I listened to the audiobook because my first time through, I didn't catch the foreshadowing from the Mind Flayer. I didn't catch the fact that the Mind Flayer was orchestrating all of this. At least right. that's what like it's meant to sound like and i just thought it was just such a great little arc in the first part of this book just such uh, great writing what is the world coming to when you can't trust a matron mother of house of house to Warden in in the middle of men's Baron? i mean she's the eighth ruling council if you yeah. can't trust her oh boy can you, can you oh, trust boy. anybody <laughs> no i think it's a really good dim light because for me you really do. You have to wonder about like Drow and the you know Goddess of Chaos and everything because it's like, what well, it, it's it's like a, a hop spit and a jump ago that, you know, uh, the Mind Flayer allegedly is like, hey, you'll know when to get rid of her. And then Matron Bay and right. Ray, like as soon as dawn cracks on the day is like, oh oh hold on, there's a sacrifice needs my hand. I'm gonna gonna finish this. No no no, you took it ninety percent of the way there. Let me get it. And then, bam, switches targets right, right on this. It's first opportunity that she gets to double cross. Right. But it's Shanae. like going from. She's like, yeah, like, yeah, you're dead. Yeah. But between like chapter one to chapter five, I totally forgot about that, you know? Yeah. And so going back and like going through it again and hearing those voices, I'm like, oh, right. Whoa. Shoot. Because when it first comes about it, it seems like one of those things you want to like, let's put a pin in that and come back because clearly right. that's meant to. No, it's not. It's meant to fact that like as soon as she gets a breath back and slows down her heart rate, she's just going right. to assassinate the lady. Yep. So cool. Awesome. And the Yaklal goes from being like, bro, I don't even watch baseball. Why am I at a baseball game? What do you got me uh -huh. here for? To suddenly being like, oh, no, this is my jam. Go ahead. Yeah. Swing away. <laughs> yeah. I actually love this sport. Go ahead. What are we doing? Sacrifices today? <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> All right. So that's the dim light reel. Let's start to link some of the these uh, these chapters to our favorite tabletop game in the portion of the show we call the Dungeon Delve.
Of course, you know that the Dungeon Delve is the part of the show where we link this week's reading with our favorite tabletop game. So, uh, my canid, your canid, my canids, right? Come on. <laughs> when we came across these creatures in the beginning, I was automatically drawn to them. They're large. They're silent for the most part. They're stoic. And we're, we're really only told about their losses and their unwillingness to deal with interlopers. They've lived next to Drizzt for years, but they don't work with him or mingle with him any more than is necessary. Mm -hmm. According to Forgotten Realms fandom wiki, they're a race of ambulatory fungus creatures known for their peacefulness and appreciation of quiet. Making their homes in the darker corners of the world, they resemble giant fungi, raising from, uh, ranging from 2 to 12 feet tall, with their main distinguishing feature being their limbs. The upper half split into a pair of arms below the cap, and their lower half divided into a pair of legs at the stump. Each extremity is extremely pudgy and broad, with their hands ending in two stubby fingers and a thumb, their feet huh. hosting like a numerous vestigial toes. These numbers are not universal. Some fungal folk uh, host more than the usual number of limbs or digits. Their skin is uh, bloated flesh that ranges in the colors of like purple to gray, and then two eyes rest on the caps, perfectly concealed against the rest of the skin when they're shut. So an interesting fact, some fungus uh, excrete a poison that oozes from everywhere except their hands. There's also a mutant strain of myconid referred to as venom spores that have a pale milky skin tone contrasted by a bright red cap. Their eyes were a sickly shade of yellow with identically colored spots adorning their cap. So if you're a mushroom fanatic, that would be like your uh, mascara mushrooms. The ones from like Mario with the red and the white uh, circles okay. on them. So not the ones from... Um... The Last of Us, I guess? No, no, no. Probably not quite so uh, vicious looking. <laughs> I see much more of a Nintendo build here. <laughs> so unlike any of the other creatures of the Underdark, Mykonids have a complete aversion to violent behavior. They have a general sense of distrust towards outsiders due to their experience with most of the other entities. They do make a note to say that they are a thoughtful race who will give shelter or allow passage through their colonies to those who approach, uh, approach with peaceful intentions. And this makes sense when you think about uh, you know, why they'd allow Drizzt to live beside them for so long. He may have expressed violent behavior as the hunter, but his intentions were always to strive for peacefulness. Right. You know, I also find it neat that when they mention the venomous spores, where Drizzt felt the spores come toward him from the new Mushroom King, he realized right. that some of the spores could be dangerous, but not the ones that he saw. He knew that, yeah. like, on sight, those were, those were okay. Yeah, so, like, how many times did he experience the poisonous ones to learn that? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's probably <laughs> part of the, uh, uh, the ac academy. The academy learning. Almost called oh, it the academy. Could be. You know, the academy. The academy, <laughs> of course. Goodness. <laughs> So their fungal folk were largely peaceful, but there is one variant that existed that was far more insidious. They were a heavily expansionist breed, uh, seeking to grow quickly in both number and territory, but they are not known to be evil. Even the venom spores only sought combat when permitted, and they evidently are considered a bloodthirsty variety. So the okay, mushroom folk that, do not... Go ahead. Th that has to be The Last of Us. Yes, mechanics. those are more like yeah. those, yeah. Uh, the, the rapidly expanding... And right. I thought that was neat because, you know, fungus really does range from so many different forms that they literally broke it down. Different spores, different Did limbs, really? different looks. That's cool. Yeah. And <clears throat> so for them, they don't handle weapons. They resort to, like, melee pummeling. 
You know, the ones that excrete poison can use that to enhance their attacks, but spores were the main weapon. And it's not always a combat-driven uh, approach for their spores. Okay. The effects, they, they varied wild, widely. Almost wildly. They varied <laughs> widely. As they grow older, they gain access to a greater number of spores and they have different types and uses. Distress spores were the first to develop. And this really kind of made me think of like the genealogy. It's the wrong okay. word. Of the mushroom folk, like how they uh, genetically adapt to their surroundings, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Distressed spores were the first to develop. They quickly spread hundreds of feet in a matter of seconds and alert the myconids of danger. Hmm. So the first thing that they develop is the ability to tell each other to flee. Right. Because there's danger. Then after that, you get uh, rapport spores that give them the ability to telepathically engage with other intelligent life forms this is how drizzt was talking to them okay and then reduction re reproduction spores came next then okay. came pacification spores which would daze incoming threats now this is where the venom spores their pacification spores actually contained a toxic alternative that was dangerous to non-myconoid forms okay then they get hallucination spores, which help actually with their melding rituals between themselves. But they also can uh, kind of work or factor as a, uh, a way to incapacitate other non-myconids. You know, you think about it, you'd be too busy in the corner tripping like, oh, man, everything's going wacky. But you're still incapacitated. You're not going to be doing <laughs> right. a whole lot of fighting. Right. <laughs> and then finally, I guess like at end stage fungal man. You're going to come to animator spores, which could only be used by a sovereign, which is like, you know, the, their main leader guy. Okay. This spore caused a bulbous fungus to grow on intact corpses and took control over their systems to make spore serpents. This is also very much like the ones in The Last of Us, if you think yes, about it. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, the expansionist myconids could not use the telepathic contact. They'd only be able to convey raw emotions like fear or satisfaction, except for the sovereign, the large one. They're uh, genetically a little different in the thanks. Uh, there's genetically a little difference in, which, uh, in their, their, their fists, which are covered in spikes. They're also more magically versed. They have these things called rot priests. There's this <laughs> strange link between positive and negative energy. So radiant power actually prevents their regeneration. But upon death, they burst and release healing energy. They're able to absorb the damage of others in their colony inflict and inflict necrotic pain in others. These fungal folks are really fascinating. When I fell into this rabbit hole, I did not realize how deep it's going to go. Yeah, I didn't realize there was that much. <laughs> no, I mean, and this is like all of this and, and much, much more is even with the fact that their true origins are practically unknown due to the fact that they have no actual verbal or written language. So they weren't keeping a history of themselves, so to speak. Uh, okay. They live in large colonies, but they all possess unique personalities. We see that again with Driz being able to... Um, interact with the the mushroom the new mushroom king okay they have six stages of growth which occur every four years or so that's why i told you the different spores that come in and their life ending somewhere after 24 years oh i mean so short right i could, look guys <laughs> i could get lost forever but we're gonna go ahead and put them in the creature feature with links for you to dive in even further uh we're gonna strap this in and go through the stat block real quick just so you have the gd <laughs> part of it the average myconid is considered unaligned, no chaos, no neutral, no alignment. It's just 
okay. unaligned. And they're obviously a plant. They have a, a AC of 12. They have hit points averaging 38 hit points. Speed of 20 feet, so they're not the quickest. You wouldn't imagine a spore is going to run you down or mushroom. Yeah. They get a plus two to strength. They also get a plus one to wisdom and uh, con, uh, con. Goodness. Const- constitution, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Getting everything kind of melded up there in my in a head. The words weren't coming out. It was like, con dexterity? No. <laughs> so uh, we mentioned before they're immune to poison. They do have blind sight. They get 60 feet. Uh, passive perception is a 10, so they don't have anything on my current uh, druid that's running oh, around. Yeah. But they're semi-intelligent. Their language is telepathic. They also put it down as myconid, but again, they don't really have any like formal right. language as such. Right. <clears throat> they get a disadvantage on attack rolls with wisdom checks that rely on sight when in the sunlight because they have a sensitivity. Oh, gotcha. Uh, spore clouds. They recharge on a five and a six. They expel a cloud of poisonous spores in a five-foot radius. Victim will take a DC 10 constitution saving throw, and uh, on a fail, takes 2d6 poison damage. Half on a save. They also have dominating spores. Now, this is, you know, it's a little bit where the history and the mechanic doesn't quite match up, because they're not venom spores. The mic can just use the venom spores. Now, the dominating spores, they also recharge on a five and a six. They are a plus five to hit. And they make a DC, the target on a, on a target gets a DC wisdom save or becomes dominated. This means that they have a telepathic link as long as you're on the same existence, same plane of existence. And they can use this link to issues commands while you're conscious <clears throat> to do things like attack that, run over there, or fetch. Each time you take damage, you'd make a wisdom save to see if you stay dominated. This sounds horrendous if they yeah. get you with that. Yeah, like if you're on the same plane. Yeah, <laughs> like well, like there's no for the away duration. They're they're you know like uh, on a higher oh, level oh, okay. they can dominate you for an up to an hour, but right. this would stop you from being like oh he's dominated let's throw up a portal I grab my friend I jump through and we're over in Icewind Dale and it's like right. no you're still on the same astral plane so therefore that guy is still dominating your friend you better find another workaround like yeah crazy so That's they go awesome. from being these creatures who like again they abhor violence they don't really fight and stuff like that and. Wow, they could be very tricky. I wonder if anyone has made up character sheets for these. As far as, like, if anyone wanted to be a Myconid, if if anyone, like, homebrewed a, like a level-up system for them. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you have here. I mean, there's a few things here and there, but, um, yeah, I wonder if anyone's done that. That'd be cool. If you have, by all means, jump into our Discord. Give us a, give us an idea. Shoot us an email. Drop us a link. Let us know. It'd be really kind of cool to see some of the homebrew ideas that maybe go a little bit outside the box. Yeah, totally. In fact, I have something else that uh, you should totally join the Discord for or uh, send us an email if you have anything uh, uh, anything to add to it. But I had, for my Dungeon Delve, just there was... Um, a moment in the book where it was just like something was said and I was just like, really? Huh? And I just, it got me thinking about it and I just could not have this not be my dungeon delve. So I wanted to talk about calendars within the D and D world, right? So, um, what's the situation after, after, uh, the sacrifice of Sinefe, uh, the Yalkalal informs malice 
that she has 10 10 days to sacrifice Drizzt. And right after that, it says that is 70 cycles of Narbendel. Okay, that's where we're at. That's what she said. I had so to read a 10 it. day is like a week. So that's what it seems like, right? Well, because the cycle of Narbendel would be a day. Seven of those cycles would be a week times ten. So, so seven days so, a ten day. So here's my thought process. So a ten day is a ten day ten days? And when I no. looked it up online, people were saying, yeah, ten day a ten day is ten days. So then seventy cycles of Narbendel, how many days of that? I can like you can only figure that 70 cycles is 70 days. It would make more sense if a 10 day was 7 days, just like you were saying. That would make a lot more sense. Okay, cuz I'm sitting here in my head like, wait a minute. I mean, the math doesn't work for me. No, it does not compute, right? And yeah. so I'm just like, what is going on here? When I looked online, now this was only a couple sources and it was just real quick. Maybe I needed to look a little more in depth. But uh I looked up a 10 day and it was like a 10 day, it it's 10 days and so I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'm not a rocket scientist, but 10, 10 days should be 100 days if a 10 day is 10 days. And 70 cycles of Narbondel would be 70 days. So Otherwise, you'd have up, seven right? cycles of Narbondel in a day. And that doesn't even break down. Or, right. or something like that. Yeah. Not quite seven in a day, but something like that where you're you're having multiple per day. So, well, yeah, I mean, if, if, if 70 is a 10 day and 10 day is 10 days, that'd be seven cycles per day in a 10 day. And it just quite, doesn't right? make sense to have an odd amount of uh, oh. cycles on a stalactite that goes up and down. Right. <laughs> so may, the way I led into this was maybe our listeners have an explanation for this, right? Join join the Discord. Uh, send us an email if you if you know what the explanation yeah. is. The, Look, the if you have a copy of a drought calendar, make sure that you cover up Miss July. We don't we don't need you sending any kind of drought gifts like that. <laughs> but by all means, send us a picture in the Discord and let us know what your drought calendar looks like. You know, goodness. Right. So I mean, when I read this, it got me thinking about having a calendar in your D and D games. So that's really what I wanted to talk about. But that just kind of like was really that's what caught my attention <laughs> so Excellent. jeffrey i know when when we started playing our first campaign like the one that we played in person mm. i don't know if you remember this but i had it down to the date oh yeah you had like, a little time turner too didn't oh you? man like, i, I had a day. time of day like a little clock that i would yep. turn as we were playing and and the date and the month and the year even i think like it was so much more in depth like um. Yeah, like I had names for the months, I had seasons, I had festivals, I had everything. It was a really fun thing that I was able to just like, it was just a, another little creative outlet while I was preparing for the games. Uh, so that, that was nice in that way. It was just a fun little thing I could add to make it a little more interactive and livable. Of course, like I was saying, it's a lot of extra work too. Um, but hey, if you um, are lazy like me, uh, in like our most recent campaign, I did not, I don't, I don't even know what happened to that calendar, so it's gone. But if you're lazy like me, you can look up a number of examples online. 
So it seems the, like the cal- you Sorry. say lazy, but it's when people need to take a rest that the the clock really starts to work against everybody because it's like we need eight hours, okay? But in order to do that, these guys need six hours, but these guys need four hours, and so like every time you take a sleep, it's like a twelve hour shift for everybody to get their eight hours in. So the next thing you know, right. you're only getting four <laughs> hours of adventuring a day that you keep changing your clock. It's, it's <laughs> tough, man. <laughs> uh, so. <clears throat> So you can make up your own calendar, but yeah, you can find so many examples online. It seems like the calendar of Harptos, I think is how it's pronounced, is the most commonly used one in Faerun. Um, but there's a bunch of of possible calendars out there. Um, I know there's a lot of images as well. So I'm going to try like an image of what the calendar looks like with like labeling all the months and everything. So I'm going to see if I can find something like that. Also put that in the... Um, not in the like creature feature. But every month is another matron mother of that ruling house. Oh, like, no, man, no. Cool. <laughs> there's, there's wrinkly old matron Bay and Ray. And on January. <laughs> okay. Just scowling at that picture. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> my intentions, like initially, the first time we were playing, my intentions for incorporating a calendar it was actually like in hopes to provide a world that can actually be lived in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one where you guys were my players would be able to go on a little quest for, you know, a couple days, but then you come back and you have homes and you have families and you have jobs and you can live normal lives. And maybe like between sessions, it's like, Hey, four months went by. Let's see how much money you guys made or something. Because I mean, you would you would have a chance to go to festivals. You would have a chance to run your farm or to run an inn or whatever you have, right? I just, I was really into that idea. So I really wanted to have that as an option. You were going to create D&D games as one of those away from keyboard games that level up while you're not there? <laughs> well, I was thinking about it. Just like, You know, like, oh, your character has been doing great with husbandry. You now have seven chickens. You, you'd still have to roll for it. Like, oh, okay. Right. It wouldn't just be like, like you've know. been away for three real weeks. You've now made three cows, two chickens, and you've harvested the corn. <laughs> you couldn't find so, anybody to take it to market, though. Your corn rotted on the corner, and everyone oh, refers no. to you now as Farmer McStinky Corn. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> I did find that this calendar idea was quickly pushed to the side when I wanted to make the campaign into like an epic quest, you know? Um, I mean, when you're on an epic quest, there's no downtime, right? Like, I mean, there's downtime in the fact that you need to rest at night, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to go harvest my stinky corn. It's, um, you know, you you have this... Not harvesting, it is how you get stinky corn. (laughs) Like if you... uh... If you don't finish this quest, if you don't stay on this quest, the world is going to end. Like, that's the mentality that I had with the most recent couple right. uh, campaigns. Like, Frodo's got to stop halfway through it because it's time to pick the crops. Like, up seasonally speaking, Harvest Festival is here. I'm going to put this uh, the, the ring I mean, on the side over here and go uh, chop down I mean, some wheat. To be fair, if you read Fellowship of the Ring, that's exactly what he does for years. He has the ring for years. He was getting to it. You know what I mean? Like, just don't ask him how many times you've asked him to cut the yard. He's going to get out there and do it soon. 
Sue. <laughs> he's been he meaning to. His, his back hurts. He had a that, long day at work. You know, that's a good example. That's an example of putting the epic quest on the back burner and just like living life and doing that right? instead. What'd you do today? Man, I had three growlers of hot chocolate, okay? You leave me be. <laughs> so About to watch I, the World Quidditch Cup over here. <laughs> So I do hope that eventually our current game can get to that point where we can, you know, like incorporate little quests and like, hey, how did your farm do? Or how's the inn doing? Or something like that. I think something like that would be a lot of fun. But um, how our current campaign is going, I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. Like I've sacrificed all the villagers to try to gain the favor of the gods. You did what? (laughs) They're all gone. (laughs) All right. Well, that's the Dungeon Delve, and I think that's going to do it for this episode. So I want to thank you for listening. Oh, no. And remember that if you like the show, give us a five-star rating. Also, make sure you're getting the most out of this podcast. Pick up a copy of the book and read along with us. If you don't have time to read, you can get the audiobook just like I do and listen during your commute, at the work, at the gym, wherever you can. And when you've read the next part, shoot us an email at drizdunright at gmail.com. Let us know your favorite parts, or you can log on to the Discord to join in on the ongoing discussion. Remember, we would love to hear from you. Well, we found our way to the end of the tunnel, and that's either a light or an oncoming locomotive. But what a smashing success this has been. See? Nice. As always, we want to thank you, our listeners, for being on the other end of this episode. We appreciate the time you give us, and we, you know, if you'd like to give a little bit more, we do have that link to support this podcast. It is in the episode description, and it's a little kindness goes a long way. Hang on tight, folks. We're gonna rip through this book pretty quick. Hope you're paying attention. Until the next time that you press play and we join you at the speakers. Farewell, friends. Play fair and be well.